You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. I'm Dr. Jen Kerr-McCulloch. I am an oncology and palliative care social worker by identity, and I'm an assistant professor in the School of Social Work here at Colorado State University. So I can think of one person in particular. Um, It was a woman in her mid-60s who, when they first showed up um, in our cancer center, they walked in and all eyes just turned. They, They just radiated life and beauty and they had on bright red lipstick and high heels and were looked like maybe they were going to be going to a broadway performance and we're you know in small town rural you know united states and um so i'm like what is unique about this person and so you know i just got to know her over several years to learn more about her and her family and her situation And in particular, as her health started to decline, you know, I noticed that she was more tired, right? Her hair would be not as as fancy. Um, Lipstick was always on, and there are always high heels on. So, you know, it could be underneath, in a wheelchair, underneath the blanket, I would see a fancy leopard print high heel shoe. There was, she just had this energy about her. And so I talked to her about, you know, how are you feeling? And she'd say, my body feels horrible. I'm wasting away. I don't feel beautiful like I used to feel beautiful. And I have these things that I want to do. I want to see my daughter get married. I have a new boyfriend. I want to start, you know, getting to know him. Um, And I want to see my grandchild be born. And so I, I started to figure out how can I interact with people to learn ways to find what their magic moment is or the magic person to them um and so meeting this person i was like i'm gonna this is what i'm gonna do this is how i'm going to kind of interact with each new person that i meet to figure out what is a social worker i can do to help these moments shine for them so it's kind of what got me starting to think about um, my interactions with my clients in a different way and how in the medical system, and it's getting better, but over time, you know, people, we, we focus on their bodies. We focused on what is their diagnosis? What is, you know, what's their lab count? Um, what is the size of their tumor? How many millimeters? How many of them are there? You know, what region does it cross? What stage it is? And we lost the person in this process. And I think we're getting better now at finding the person. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the person on the team that could help find the person and write notes on the chart like, hey, do you know they have this coming up? And this is really important to them. How can we help structure their treatment plan, keeping within our boundaries so that they can still feel like they have a life outside of treatment? So that's what kind of like motivated me and getting started my research brain. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of Living Healthy Longer. We have been away for the past couple months, but I am excited to be back today to kick off our next round of really insightful and thought-provoking episodes, starting with today's conversation with Dr. Jen Curran-McCulloch, an assistant professor of social work at CSU. 
Today's episode is all about strategies for meaning making at end of life. How do we pursue hope despite a debilitating diagnosis? Or maybe you're just getting older and realizing that time is more precious. I talked to Dr. Curran McCulloch about how we communicate with ourselves, our loved ones, and our doctors as we reach the end of our lives. It was a truly beautiful and inspiring conversation, so I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Jen, thank you so much for coming on our show. You are our first guest of our season two, so I'm a little rusty. It's been a couple months since I've done one of these. (laughs) Well, I'm excited to kick off the new year with you. And so, Jen, we brought you on the show to have a conversation about communicating at end of life. That seems to be kind of your bread and butter. It's it's what your research focus is. Um, And I think a good way to situate that is to kind of talk about that from three perspectives of, you know, the doctor and the patient, the patient and how they're making sense of what they're going through, and then how that patient's family kind of plays into the whole conversation. So what struck me when I was reading through some of your publications is that you deal with the things that we don't talk about. (laughs) Like you deal with the very tough conversations, the very big feelings that I think societally we don't give enough justice to and we don't put a light on those conversations. Right. Yeah. So in in the big technical term, right, it's called existential quality of life. Um, There we go. There's a term for it. (laughs) (laughs) There's a term for it. And probably because the term is so blah and um, big and long that we don't even go there. But you're right. It is, you know, talk about a person that feels so different at parties. Like, so people ask me, what do you do? Well, I like to talk about people like how they find joy while they're dying. They're like, nope, not, nope. Oh, (laughs) I want to go for those sausages in the corner, right? It's, it's, um, yeah, nobody wants to talk about it. But yet when you are with the person who's in that moment, what an honor it is to be able to be there and to walk alongside them because they don't have anyone to share that, that discussion with, to share what's, what they've been holding or want to release and their fears. Um, I think chaplains are exceptional in this kind of work. And, and I think I learn a lot from them and their presence and being able to open these dialogues. Um, and so I'm thinking, you know, as social workers, what can we do? And, and other healthcare providers, it, it doesn't have to be people who have mental and spiritual health training that can have these conversations. It's being willing to sit with, I call it, to sit with the messy and the discomfort and the sadness, or maybe even the like elation um, at something that, you know, that suffering is ending and being able to deal with that kind of paradox. I think that's just so beautiful. And I think it's such honorable work to do because you're helping people identify how they're feeling. They might not have had a word for how they're feeling before, but I think through the work that you do, they can make sense of it 
a little mm-hmm. bit more. Yes, yes. I, we call it meaning making. Let's go there. So let's let's have that be like, like the first the first um, part about communicating of end communicating at end of life, the patient and how they make sense of what they're going through. What are some of the strategies for meaning making that you've discovered in your research that patients often gravitate towards when they're diagnosed with something big and scary? Right, right. There is, I created a theory, another big word, right? Um, But like thinking about all these different phases and how people kind of like their trends and how people engage with themselves, the people around them, like their relationships with partners or providers and then kind of like systems, right? So what kind of motivates the physical and emotional and social being, right? Um, And so what is it that gives us hope, right? Is kind of how I, I look at meaning making. What gives our life joy um and so in talking with a lots of different people about this they're kind of different phases of this process um so i think the first part is being willing to talk about the hard parts right to think about how our life has changed and are there times and things about our life that we used to have that aren't there anymore and how do we navigate this sense of uncertainty you know um, you may be somebody as an older adult who has had, you know, just chains and significant loss after significant loss and after significant loss. And so it's the world that we knew before kind of feels alien, um, as if you were, sometimes it's a gradual change, but sometimes when you have a health crisis, it can be as if you're dropped on another planet or on a desert island without a map. Um, or the map is in a different language that you can't read. You don't have your people there with you, and you don't have the things that bring your life comfort and joy, right? So it's like, how do you navigate and truly grieve what, what you've lost before? And this is the uncomfortable, hardest part of it all, is to being able to acknowledge um, these losses that have happened. It's kind of working through these to get to a place to figure out what is it that makes me who I am? What gives my life a sense of um, purpose? What, like, what did I do before that made my life meaningful? Um, and there are a couple of different things I can think of that can help to get that. But it's this process of being able to reconcile or integrate what this body is now, what this mind is now, um, with what it used to be, and how can I find a place of not peace, maybe not even acceptance, but just acknowledgement that this is who I am potentially going forward. And I still have this person in my heart. I still have this person in my soul and my being. And how can I keep that spark alive? It's kind of like the processes that I see people typically go through. Um, There are some cool things that I found that are fun in this process. And big questions, say if you were um, a daughter of someone or a son or a partner or friend, 
to have a time where you can carve out and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about you. Like, I'd like to learn more about your life. Like, um, how, how wonderful it is to see somebody share their life story and like the glisten that they have, right? And I think we work with a lot of folks um, who have um, dementia or Alzheimer's and they have these moments where they remember and can go back into younger days or hear a song. And it's, it's that kind of spark that I love to try and ignite. Um, so a couple of questions that might be kind of fun to ask um, to start these dialogues in maybe kind of, like of a more fun and intentional way. Um, so you don't have, if you don't comfortable sitting in the messy, right? Would be what, you know, what has happened in your life that you're most proud of? Whether it doesn't have to be um, getting a PhD or graduating from high school, it can be a relationship that you nurtured. Uh, maybe it's a mentoring relationship, a friendship, a, a, an intimate relationship. Um, it could be a trip you took. It could be um, sage advice that you've gathered that you've been able to share with other people. Um, so it's really important to like have these conversations about what's what's what makes you who you are, and when you're not here, what kind of legacy do you want to leave on this world? Um, so kind of thinking about what are you proud of. Another thing that I like to think of that we don't ever really talk about are ethical wills. We talk a lot about wills, wills, right? But we don't ever talk about ethical wills, and this is our sense of our values and our moral beliefs and our thoughts and feelings about the world and how the world should be. And this is another free thing that people can do. You can even find ethical wills online and YouTube, how to fill them out, but it helps people to engage in conversation about what's been important to them and what, what do they want their loved ones to know about them? What values do they want them to carry on? Maybe it's like, a recipe that they've had that they've carried on from generation to generation that they feel is really valuable and tells a story about their family. Um, another fun thing to do is to build like kind of like a time capsule, but it's like a who am I box, right? And putting in trinkets that are super important that reflect things that have happened in their life. Um, so sit down with somebody and say, hey, if I could pick five things that you have, maybe it doesn't have to be a, a physical item, but it could be a poem they have or a, a, a motto or a recipe, like I said. And if I could get these five things, what would they be? And tell me a little bit about them. And you could put them in a box if they're items. And where, where who would you like to know about these things? Um, these are kind of fun things that you can do to work towards like what gives your life meaning. Also thinking like, where do you, where do you want to look forward to? What things do you, you know, the, the infamous bucket list, right? I don't, I don't know that I like the term, but everyone seems to know what it is, right? Like what things do you still have left that you want to tackle? Um, and how can we help you reach those? Maybe it's reframing them, which is a lot of what we do as social workers at end of life is say, you know, if you have this much energy today, or if you know you have a treatment for chemotherapy that will make you tired for two of the next three weeks, what can we do in that 
third week and really like make that a special week. Um, that's another kind of thing I like to do is help reframe hopes and wishes that are in manageable chunks. I think those are all just wonderful strategies that really get you to consider your legacy, to consider, mm -hmm. you know, the saying, the days are long, but the years are short <laughs> and all the things that you do in those years and you, you sit back and you reflect on it and you're like, wow, I've done so many things in what feels like such a short period of time and really considering yeah. what that legacy is that you're, you're leaving behind to your loved ones for the most part. Yes. Yeah. So one thing that you mentioned a lot is this hope, the sense of hope that you have at this stage of life. And so I definitely want to bring this up and talk to you about this framework that you have developed around contingent hope is what you call it, the contingent hope theoretical framework. And I especially want to talk about that because as I've told you in our, our call last week, I've been immersed in academia forever, it feels like. So I recognize how big of a deal it is as a researcher when you can come up with your own framework and you can test it and you can find results for it. And so I, I tell us about this contingent hope theoretical framework and how you developed it and what it means. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you. It, it was, I, you know, it almost killed me. <laughs> it almost brought me to end of life. Just kidding. Um, it was, yes. It's my dissertation work. Well, part of what made me want to go back um, to school after 20 years and kind of surrender everything was look at the role of hope as a motivating factor. Um, how do people define hope and what meaning do they ascribe to hope? And um, so part of my dissertation work or my dissertation work was to develop a theory of hope. Um, and I, I worked with young adults that have advanced cancer. Um, and what I have learned since developing this framework that it applies really well to anyone that is experienced a significant loss uh, or is navigating a health uncertainty. So I think very appropriate for an older adult um, and or a caregiver who is caring for an older adult and trying to navigate this world. It is called the theory of contingent hope. And uh, there are several factors of this process um, and really how thinking how one intervenes or interacts with the world and what nurtures this hope. Um, so it was fun and just hearing how people and as younger adults with advanced cancer, they're thrown into an older adult developmental stage at a really young age. And so they're faced with, you know, I've lost all of my hair. Um, I'm no longer able to work. I am, my body is not strong enough to hold me, so I can't walk anymore. Um, and I also know that I may have only a couple months left to live. And so it's really a lot of the same developmental perspectives that an older adult would have um, through a person who's 18 to 39. So I think it's also very relevant to older adulthood. So really what this theory does is it looks at hope and hope being um, two different factors. Agency is like oneself and one's ability to navigate things on their own and resources, like how do we have resources? So um, 
in the theory, oneself, like, like there's some kind of threat or something that happens to us um, that throws us into this state of uncertainty. And oftentimes we're in a state of uncertainty. We have no idea what to do. We had our usual coping mechanisms and resources don't work for us. So we have to learn how to navigate this. And who are our people? Maybe the people we had really aren't the people that can help us anymore. Um, and then we look at um, how the sense of feeling broken that I mentioned before. So physically broken, but also mentally broken, emotionally. Um, when one's going through a major crisis and not having these coping skills, it creates a lot of anxiety um, and waking up and not knowing what that day is going to unfold. Um, if you have an illness, is there going to be a a place where my pain is so unmanageable that I can't, I can't bear it anymore. Um, what will my labs be like? You know, will my family be able to support me through this? Can I stay in my own home? Um, will I remember my loved ones anymore? What happens when I lose my memory? These kinds of things that can happen. So how do you navigate the sense of being broken and this grief and loss of the self that you had? And so through this process, this messiness that we've talked about, how do we find our bearings? Is there a medical provider that can give us really good information about this is what's going to happen to your body? This is what to expect this month, this month, when this symptom happens, you know, how do you, how do you navigate it? So they're helping us find our physical bearing. Do we engage a social worker, counselor, or a good friend to talk about our emotional uncertainty and emotional sense of feeling broken and not who we are. I had somebody describe to me that the sense of being broken was like being a, a glass doll in a, in a party and like lots of people around them and no one knowing what to say, no one not wanting to come up and talk to them or approach them because they were seen as fragile. And, you know, they're still the same person on the inside, but how, how can we help to get back to that place. And so the next part is just trying to figure out how do we take, as I said, who we were before and who we are now. What's the core of us and how do we reconcile that past life and this present life? And the sense of contingent hope is being able to reconcile who we were before and who we are now. I love that. I love that you boiled down again, like you were saying, this existential quality of life and all these thoughts that you're having when you're going through this terrible thing and you can, you can narrow it down to these are the stages of what that feels like. <laughs> it help. I feel like that can help someone understand that they're not alone in these feelings that they're having, that these are probably universal feelings that everyone experiences when they go through a diagnosis like this. Right. Which is the hardest part I think I see and others. I've never had a life limiting or, or chronic illness myself, but I see this others. I've seen this in my family is, is a sense of isolation and that I'm the only one who gets it. Or maybe there's somebody else out there, but I don't know them and I can't talk to them and the energy it would take to find them is exhausting when it takes just enough to get up and try and eat something for breakfast or drink and ensure um, that, yeah, it, it 
it's that's the worst part about illness is this isolation and feeling isolated from our own bodies and what we know about ourselves. Like our bodies have betrayed us, you know. And what can we do to feel like ourselves again and feel connect and connected in our in our own self and connected with others? That's why I think support groups are awesome. I know some people are like, oh, don't say that word. <laughs> But that's the best part about support groups is finding others who get it, like who can sit with you in those times when you like, oh my God, I threw up for 12 hours straight. How do you do that? Where your family you know, doesn't want to talk about it or they don't want to hear that your body's tired and you don't think you can do it anymore. Like Other people get that feeling and can support you through that and maybe give you more energy to feel like you can continue going. Yes. Yes. So something that you've mentioned a couple times here is the role of the medical provider in all of this. And yeah. so I'm curious what your research has found when it comes to, you know, what is your doctor's responsibility in communicating this information to you? How can they help you? What is not helpful that they can tell you that you just wish they wouldn't tell you? What do you what do you find when you talk to people about that relationship between doctor and patient? Right. This is another area where I think things have changed for the good. I think as a medical provider, the first question is to ask, how much do you want to know? Um, and when do you want to know this? And what type of information do you want to know? So when, say, if you are working uh, with somebody that is newly diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, you know, how much do you want to know now? How much do you want to know a month from now? And how much do you want us to engage your family in sharing with them? Or somebody with a, a cancer illness um, or a chronic pulmonary disease that we kind of know potential trajectory, like, when do you want us to know that this is the time that you need to start doing these kinds of activities? What kind of things do you still want to do? Because if we knew that, we could plan better in terms of maybe your first surgery, we could put off an extra week, you know, and as providers, we can put off, you know, if we stop, start radiation a week later, is that going to make a difference in some cancers? Yes, totally. But in some, maybe not, right? So, you know, that, that is when, when do you want to know? How much do you want to know? And how do you want to know? And then who do you want with you is important too. Because um, sometimes there's the right person to be there. Sometimes folks want to hear it by themselves and be able to navigate that information, absorb it, and then process it back out to others in a way that they think is palatable and parse it or just at once. That's, you know, what they think would be best. I think one thing a, a takeaway could be if you are going to your doctor um, or your provider, whoever that is, to, to let them know what gives your life meaning and things that you want to do so that they can help partner with you to make sure that you can do those things that make you feel whole and your soul fulfilled. Right. It sounds like a patient-driven model of how they want to handle their own health care, which I think is the way we should be going in the medical field. Rather, you know, having the doctor patient relationship be one that's kind of co-created yes. instead of 
just, you know, this is how we do it. <laughs> this is what the doctor says. This is how we do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like me and I think an interprofessional perspective, you know, because no one person can sail the ship and make someone better. It takes the whole team to do that. And I like that we're also moving in that much better in that direction. The final point in this little three-prong communicating end of life is the relationship between the patient and their family members or their caregivers. So I'm wondering, do you have any advice or any, you know, effective coping strategies that you've found through through interviewing participants about how the family members can handle their loved one's illness and how they can make sense and get through that illness? Yes. Um, but just sitting at the bedside for so many years and working at the same place for 14 years, I got the opportunity to work with folks who they themselves would be diagnosed with an illness and their partner would, or family member would care for them. And then their role would change that the caregiver would then be the one who was diagnosed and the, their partner would be the one caring for them. And hundred percent, hundred percent. Every time I asked anyone, they would say it was much harder to be the caregiver than it was to be the patient. And so I, from the very beginning, I took this information very seriously. And how, how do I approach this? And so many people were wonderful enough to tell me that, you know, what, what they struggled with. I think the first part being a sense of control. Um, you know, I, I've cooked this meal for someone. They said they wanted, you know, to have steak for dinner. And I went out, I bought the steak, I found a caregiver so I could leave the house, I come home, and they don't want steak anymore. And it's like, food is a way that we care. This is our love language for many people, right? I said that the whole love language needs to be defined to add, like preparing meals, and eating meals as one of our love languages. But um, so there's, there's, as a person going through an illness, we have the control we know what's going on in our bodies. We can read it. We're super intuitive most often to know what's going on. And we can say yes or no to things. But as the person, as the caregiver, we have very limited control. There are certain things that we can do, um, one of which would be giving food, uh, you know, giving rides. And providing emotional support is another big thing. So oftentimes, all these tasks build up. And it, we become like pressure cookers and can do everything, right? And so a hard part is figuring out when it's time to ask for help and how do we do that? And I think generationally, we are maybe getting to the place where we're better at asking for help and recognizing we can do everything. But I think... Um, for a lot of folks that we are taught that we need to be independent, that have survived world wars um, through all odds, through Great Depression, that we're independent, we need to do things, we're strong, we'll pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And so it's really hard to ask for help when we've been socially trained to do everything. And so it's recognizing when our breaking point is and hopefully recognize it before we get there. But if we haven't, what can we do to take care of ourselves? We nourish ourselves. We can be a better caregiver. Um, and so I think asking for help, there's some amazing websites out there or even charts that we can do, like set up a meal train where if you knew you had a surgery, 
uh, or if you knew somebody was going to be admitted to a skilled nursing facility for a couple of weeks and you wanted to be able to be there to visit your loved one, who could take your garbage out? Uh, who would pick up your mail or the paper? Like what are the tasks that you do that would be really easy to give to someone else? The tasks that are harder to give would be asking for emotional support. Um, so who, who are your balcony people? Who are the people through life who hold you up? Who can help you laugh? So kind of identifying who those people are. Who are the people that can just sit and not say anything? Those people can be super awesome at, you know, at these times of crisis. Um, then again, I know people hate to hear this, but keep moving, keep active, right? That's one of the best things to help our body and our minds because it'll help us sleep better when we're tired. Um, and there's all kinds of great research like on cognitive behavioral therapy and helping folks sleep better and managing our worries and journaling out our thoughts before we go to bed and kind of thinking about our sleep hygiene like we do our dental hygiene. Like, But I always feel like, oh, I can, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And it's like, ah, there's more stuff I have to be doing. You know, I have to do this to make my doctor happy so that I can care for them. So it's really figuring out, I think about it like as your emotional piggy, physical and emotional piggy bank. And like, when do you, when do you have enough where you feel like, okay, I'm good. I'm safe. I have enough stores in me where I can do what I need. And when are you depleted? What times of the day are your best times to do the things that take the most energy and kind of like think about chart that out. Yes. And I think we'd be remiss or I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, of course, that there are so many resources in the city of Fort Collins for caregivers, um, starting with at the Center for Healthy Aging. You know, we have our aging clinic of the Rockies that has a caregiver support group that's run by mental health therapists. <laughs> so, yes. you know, or, or, you know, the Alzheimer's Association has caregiver support groups. There are support groups for specific conditions that your loved one might be experiencing. So um, we will put links to those resources in the notes for this episode so that you have those handy. So, Jen, this is the last question that I have decided I'm going to ask everyone who comes on the show this season. So for our listeners, you might recall that last year, last season, the question was, what's your best advice for healthy aging? But I wanted to switch it up this season. So now we have a new question. So, Jen, I am wondering, what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective in social work and dealing with, you know, meaning making and end of life? Great. Thank you, Hannah. This is exciting, super exciting time for me. Super exciting time to be in Colorado for end of life work as, as a social worker. Um, Many of you may know and may hear about uh, medical aid in dying or looking at uh, the Colorado End of Life Options Act. This started back in the 90s in uh, Oregon and little pieces and parts of our country are starting to move towards legislation that provides people the opportunity to say, if they have a terminal illness, to ask their doctor if they would agree to help provide them a prescription that they could take when the time felt right, if they wanted to, um, that could ease them into death at a time that they felt was right. Um, this choice is obviously not for everyone for many different reasons. 
But for me and somebody that looks at quality of life and this existential meaning-making quality of life, how amazing is it to have the opportunity to actually be able to say, this is how I want my days of life to be, and this is how I want my last day of life to be. I was not able to do that. I lived in the state um, with my father at the time, lived in the state I live here, but lived where it was not an option, and I watched him suffer for 11 years. And so for me, I see this opportunity as, as a child, as a loved one, to have somebody to be able to plan. You know, maybe you want to have a celebration and a party. You know, I've just heard such beautiful stories about family members being there and, and having photos and flowers and all these cherished moments. And to be able to see somebody, you know, in the last moment, one minute for many people after they took their medication to just close their eyes and rest peacefully. Um, that, that's where I'm interested in going in the next couple of years to see how we can give the best last moment of life. That's beautiful. Not for everyone, (laughs) mind you. (laughs) No, not for everyone. But I mean, I told you in our call last week when we discussed this, that I I think that is the best way you can give justice to someone. Like you're saying, put the control back in their hands and let them choose. If uh, Everybody would want to go out of this world comfortably, I feel like, if they were given the option. So... Yeah, I could be so wrong about that. Maybe I'm overstating it, but I can't imagine anybody would want to suffer, you know, in in their last moments of life. Absolutely. There is meaning that can come from suffering, but I would hate for someone to have to go through that to find the meaning. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, Jen, thank you so, so much for coming on our podcast and talking to us about this topic. I loved this conversation. I thought it was just so beautiful. Um, And just to hear what you found in your research is just so empowering, I think. So thank you so much for talking about it. You are welcome. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.